Hello and welcome to Living Hope. This is Pastor Staten, and I want to welcome everybody that is joining us today. A shout out to our E family, all of you that are joining us through the internet. I want to remind you every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you can join us live at tv.livinghopemd.com. I pray that today's message blesses you and that you enjoy the word as it is shared today. I'm so lost to be found, and I know it's in my mind. Yeah, some of you know how it goes. All right. This should be fun tonight. You all are, are uh, a, a barrel of laughs tonight. You're a, you're a hoot. Amen. All right, let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts chapter 4. Riley said, Dad, you're a little bit extra tonight. I don't know. I'm in a good mood, all right? So we'll have fun tonight. We might not want to record this. We might not want to. We might want to do a five-second delay. Acts chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. Matt, be ready to pull the plug if it's too crazy, all right? Acts 4, 32 through 37. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and of one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. Neither was there anything, any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them. And brought the prices of the things that were sold. And laid them down at the apostles' feet. And distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. And Joseph, who by the apostle was surnamed apostles was surnamed Barnabas which is being interpreted the son of consolation or the son of encouragement a Levite and of the country of Cyprus having land he sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles feet amen and we're going to look at this these last six verses of the fourth chapter of Acts tonight God bless you you can be seated and the English Standard Version has summarized this grouping of scriptures as they had everything in common, all right? So that's going to be our overarching theme tonight, amen. The writings of Luke, continuing tonight in that writing, the six verses outlining the unity of the church, a church that had all things in common, can be looked at in four points. So we're going to take these six verses and break it down into these following four points. The first one is the formula for a multitude, amen, the formula for a multitude. The second is unity within the church. Have you noticed that's been, we've already talked about that, I think, twice. And only four chapters in, we're going to look at unity in the church a third time. How many of you starting to get the point that unity is important? Amen. If you're not, start back at Acts 1 and catch up and just read. And you're going to find all, you're going to find words like all and unity over and over and over again. Amen. Because unity is important in the New Testament church. The third point that we're going to look at is the ministry of the apostles. And then last one, the last point that we'll look at is the introduction of Barnabas. Amen. Those are exciting. Amen. Brother Phillips, I saw you ready to run the aisles. I know those points are so inspirational. But hopefully as we dig into them, they'll get a little bit more interesting. All right, so let's look first and foremost at the formula for a multitude. How many of you believe that it's the will of God that there be a multitude in the house of God? Amen. Wherever Jesus went, there was a multitude. Amen. The reason they had to tear a hole in the roof was not because they didn't like the architecture of the building. 
Because where Jesus was, the crowd was too much. Amen. They couldn't get the man in that needed the miracle because there was a multitude. And so they had to tear a hole in the roof to get all the way to the end of the ministry of Jesus. The very last, uh, the, the very last work of Jesus when he rides into Jerusalem, which obviously we'll be celebrating this coming Sunday. But even there, there's a multitude awaiting him. Everywhere Jesus goes, there is a multitude. I believe that where Jesus is, there should be a multitude. I believe one of the witnesses that Jesus is in the church is that there is going to be a multitude. Amen. All right, five of you believe that. The rest of you, I'm going to convince you now. So in these final six verses of Acts chapter 4, we're going to be introduced to the very best of the church. These six verses, we're going to see the church at its very best. Right? We're going we're to see the church operating at its best, functioning at its best. The church, I think we could say in modern lingo, we would say the church is thriving between Acts chapter 4, verses 32 and verses 37, the church is thriving. And I think the evidence of, of this thriving church, it's evidenced by the seven words, the first seven words of verse 32, which, sim- which simply says this, and the multitude of them that believed. Amen. And the multitude of them that believed. The Greek word for multitude is the word plethos, which means abundant. I think the, the word plethora would come from that, that same Greek word. As pertaining to a collection of people or objects, it means a throng or a compressed collection. A throng is not just a lot of people, but it's a compression of people. Amen? Just like we talked about that, that room where they had to cut a hole in the roof to lower that man down to get a miracle. Amen? There was a throng that was there. It was such a compressed, uh, people were compressed. They're trying to get closer to what's going on. Amen. The, the, the book of Acts church in Acts chapter 4 verse 32 is a growing church. Amen. You can feel even in the words that are used in those first seven words, the church is growing. It's getting crowded. Amen. The ushers are having to set out more chairs every Sunday. Amen. It's more packed than the coffee line was on Sunday morning. Two laughs and a lot of awkward nervousness. How, how did the church grow in Jerusalem in just four chapters? To be measured to be a miracle. How did they grow in that sh- uh, short of a time to be measured to be a multitude? I said miracle, I meant multitude. How, how did they grow that quickly that the writer would say that this church has grown so much that it is now a multitude? So I want to look at the formula that brings us to Acts 4 verse 32 that now the church could be considered a multitude. Amen. Again, I believe it's the will of God that living hope would be a multitude. I believe it's the will of God that living hope would be a throng, a compression of people pressing their way in on Sunday because they want God to work in their life, pressing their way in to Bible studies in living rooms, pressing their way in, amen, to Wednesday night Bible study. Why? Because people want to get close to what Jesus is doing, amen. But I believe there is a formula to a multitude. So how how do we, what, what is this formula for a multitude? Well, it starts in Acts chapter 2, verse 40, 41, amen. The Bible says this in Acts 2, 41, and I know I'm kind of recovering things we've already talked about, but the Bible says, they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Amen. They were, there were added. All right, that's the, that's the first element we're going to look at. The, the formula for, uh, for, for a multitude begins with addition. And not just any addition, it begins with addition that only God can do. Amen. Let's look further in Acts 2.47. 
The Bible says they were praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Again, the Lord added. Amen. This formula for a multitude starts with God adding to the church. Acts 4 and 4. Howbeit many of them which heard the word believed, and the number of the men was about 5,000. So in, in Acts 2 and 41, amen, many were added. That talk, it, it was talking about those that believed and obeyed, and now they're added to the church. Acts 2, 47, amen, all, it says that, uh, that um, many were added to the church. The Lord added to the church. And then in Acts 4 and 4, many believed. All right, so here's the first part of this point is simply this, the Lord adds. Amen. We can do everything we want to do. We can have all the best songs to sing, and we can have the best talent and ability. But at the end of the day, only the Lord can add. Amen. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 6 through 7, Paul writes and says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but it's God who gave the increase. Now, I do believe this. Somebody's got to plant, and somebody's got to water. But at the end of the day, God's the one that's going to give the increase. We have to know that. We have to believe that. Amen. Now, I don't believe God's going to give increase if nobody's willing to plant. If nobody's willing to go out into our community and invite them to come, we, don't have any, we shouldn't have a reason to expect that God's going to add. God adds when we plant and when somebody waters. Then God says, I'll give the increase. Amen. So then, Paul goes on in verse 7 and said, Neither is he that planteth anything, neither he that watereth, but God that giveth the increase. That ought to keep us humble. Paul says, all of you that are planting, you're not anything. And those that water, you're not anything. But it's God that gives the increase. That's where the formula begins. And we've got to pray that every Sunday we come. God, add to the church. Amen. Lord, your word says that we, the, the church should be added to daily, such as should be saved. That's the way it should be happening, is that God is adding to the church. And that is where the multitude begins, is with the Lord adding. But that's not the only element. For a multitude. Because the next step is that the church has to assimilate. Amen. God adds. How many of you know what it means to assimilate? It means we're, we're mixing them in. As, as God brings them into the church, we are teaching them. We're sharing with them the word. We're, we're indoctrinating them into the scriptures. Amen. We're welcoming them in, into our culture. Not our culture. We're welcoming them into Bible culture. Amen. We're, we're teaching them the word of God. We're loving them. We're loving their families. And as we do that, so the Lord adds, but then the church has got to assimilate. Amen. After the Lord added, in Acts 2.41, we read that, right, the, that there were many added, 3,000 were added. And after that took place, they assimilated those new believers. How did they do that? Through the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, prayer, and breaking of bread. They brought those 3,000 new people in. It wasn't, amen, that, that, acts, uh, that, that scripture that says that, you know, they continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and uh, prayer and breaking of bread. That wasn't the 120 alone that, that had been in the upper room. It was the 120 plus the 3,000. All of them, they were assimilating. And if, a, we, if 120 people could assimilate 3,000, then certainly we can figure out as a church of 200 how we can assimilate 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 people. We can figure it out. It's not that there's not a way. Many times it's that it's not convenient. It's not easy. Well, Pastor, you're asking me to give up a little bit of time in this week, and I've, just, I've got a busy schedule, and I've got things going on. There's no way I can help. And that's many times that's the reason why there's not a multitude. 
It's not that the Lord's not adding, but it's that it's not convenient for us to assimilate. Amen. And it was into this assimilating culture. So again, that Acts chapter 2 culture of a doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer, that at the end in Acts 2.47, that that's when, when the Bible says the Lord added to the church. He, he found a church where there's a culture of assimilation. He said, okay, that's the kind of church that I'm going to add people to. Amen. I believe this. If, if the church is selfish and if the church is stingy, if we get that elder brother mentality, from the prodigal son where people come in and we're too busy to take time to, to, to love on them and to, to teach them a Bible study and to, to show the love of God to them. But we're too busy. I believe that God will absolutely move down the road and find him a church that's not too busy. All right. I don't know. Maybe this is too hard coming out of the chute tonight. But it, it's the truth. Yes, the Lord adds, but there's got to be a church that assimilates. There's got to be a body of believers that recognize it's our responsibility to love the people that God is adding to the church. Amen. And the Lord said, you know what? I found a church that's willing to assimilate people, so I'll add to them. I believe that next Sunday we should have another family added. And the Sunday after that, another family. Two, three, four more families. And the Sunday after that, another family. Amen. I believe the problems we should be having around here are much, we should be having bigger problems than we've got right now. Amen. So we get hung up over little stuff, but because we don't have big problems. We need big problems. Like how in the world, how do we start a second service? How do we start a third service? How do we start a fourth service to accommodate all these people that are being added to the church? And a lot of these little petty things that we get our feelings hurt over, we wouldn't even be worried about if we could get some big problems. Amen. When many believed in Acts chapter 4, verse 4, they were assimilated into the company of believers that we find in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. So yes, it starts with the Lord adding. So the Lord adds, the church assimilates, and the end result is you have a multitude. Amen. That's the formula for a multitude. The Lord adds, the church assimilates, and the end result is you have a multitude. Sunday, there was a special anointing at this place. I don't know if y'all can feel it. It wasn't just excitement because there was something new. There was an anointing in this place. We had Sister Umanzor, uh, did I say that right, Umanzor? Uh, whose husband pastors in El Salvador, and she was here last Wednesday and then again on Sunday with the Alexander family. And uh, Brother Umanzor sent me a text on Monday, and uh, he said, my wife told me there was a special spirit in that place. Amen. Let me, people recognize there's a special. Can I tell you why that was? It's because we got back to the basics on Sunday. Amen. We focused on assimilating. We focused on fellowship. We focused on prayer. We focused on doctrine. Amen. And because of that, there was a special anointing in this place. Amen. I believe it is a special anointing of assimilation that God is placing upon this. I believe God wants to give us a multitude. Three amens and a lot of crickets. I'm going to say it again. I believe God wants to give us a special anointing of assimilation. Amen. Every person, not some people, not, not, I'm not talking to a leadership team. Here. I'm talking to every person in this building. Tiana, you've got enough Holy Ghost to assimilate somebody into the church. Amen. Amen, Brad and Charlene, it's the will of God. That God connects you with another young couple and you assimilate them into Living Hope Church. Every person in here, there's a hand, it's the will of God. 
amen, that God uses you to assimilate somebody into this body of believers. It's the will of God. If God will add and we will assimilate, the end result is there will be a multitude. Amen. The second main point that we can draw from these six verses is the unity that we find among this multitude. Amen. Acts 4.32. And the multitude of them that believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which, was, which he possessed was his own. But they had all things in common. Look at all the times the word all is used there. Everything. All. Again and again and again. Go down to verse 34. Neither was there any among them that lacked. Everybody had what they needed. For as many as were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. Verse 35. And laid them down at the apostles' feet and distribution was made unto every man according as he had need. Amen. The multitude. There was unity in the multitude. Here's what I know about unity. The smaller the crowd, the easier it is to get unity. Amen. I don't even need another person for division. I've had arguments with myself. I'm the only person. I think we call it being slow to make a decision. No, that really is all that me arguing with myself. Right? I, I can be divided without another person even being in the equation. It's work to get people unified. And it's a work of the Holy Ghost to get people unified. Amen. Jesus himself said in Matthew 18 and 19, if I can just get two of you to agree touching anything on earth in my name, it shall be done. He didn't say if I can get 500 or 600. He said if I could just get two of you to agree. If I could, that's a miracle. If I can just get two of you to agree touching anything, anything in my name, it shall be done. Even Jesus understood the miracle of unity. Amen. Back in the books of, of Acts 2, we started back in the book of Acts chapter 2, and we looked at this group of 120 in the upper room. And the Bible tells us that they were all of one mind and one accord. And we looked at that, wow, 120 people that were all focused on the same thing. Amen. And I, I looked at that and I said, wow, that's a miracle. Amen. If you can get 120 people all agreeing on the same thing, that's an absolute miracle. But then we go in in Acts chapter 2, verse 41. 3,000 have now been added to the church. And the Bible says of this 3,120 people, plus probably more, counting women and children, that all, they still have all things in common. That's a huge crowd to get unified on any one thing. They have all things in common, and I say that's incredible. But now the Bible says the church is a multitude. What I do know is right before this, 5,000 more were added to the church. So at least we've got 8,000 people in this church in Jerusalem. Amen. Probably, again, more than that because often they didn't count women and children. So maybe, I don't know, 10, 15, 20,000 people in this church, and they have all things in common. Amen. They are of one heart and soul. That is a miracle. Listen, if 10, 15, 20,000 can be unified, I believe that in this hour God can get his church unified. I don't think it's a far-off thing. I don't think it's utopia. Amen. I don't think it's pie in the sky to expect that God can unify his church in this hour. How? How, did, how, how was the church of 8, 10, 15, 20, how were they unified? How did they have all things in common? How were they of one heart and one soul? I believe the key to this level of unity is evidenced 
in the Acts chapter 4 church, and that is found in the second statement of verse 32, where it simply says this, Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own. The English Standard Version says that verse this way, And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. Amen. I believe that was the key. How, did you, how do you get 8,000? How do you get 15, 20, whatever the number was? At the minimum, 8,000. How do you get 8,000 people to be unified heart and soul? And that's not just that little dun 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 dun, dun, dun. I think that's heart and soul, right? I'm not talking about the song. That, are you, did I lose you guys? You know that little song you used to play on the piano? You're... Maddie, come show them so they know what I'm talking about. Yeah, just real quick. I know Riley's going to give me a hard time about this later. This is heart and soul, just so you guys can know. Okay, that's heart and soul. That's not what I'm talking about. All right, they're unified, heart and soul. <laughs> Amen. There's, there's no division. Thank you, Maddie. There's no division. Let's give Maddie a hand clap. And, and the key to this kind of unity is that none of them looked at their possessions and said, that's mine. Amen. Some would look at this scripture, at this portion of scripture in Acts 4, and use it as an argument for communism. I heard some boos. All right. Here's some points I would make. First of all, this was not government imposed. Secondly, it was not even leader imposed. It was the choice of the believers. There's no point in there that it says that the apostles got up and said, this is the way it's going to be. It was an, an impetus of the spirit. The Spirit began to draw the people, amen, and they wanted revival so much that they said, you know what, we want God to move so much that we'll lay down our will, we'll lay down our wants, we'll lay down our desires. Amen. I will say this, if you are a Christian, the very last form of government that you should be in support of is communism. I, I, know, I know today in universities and such, they're propagating communism, but as Christians, the very last form of government, that you should, you should be praying as fervently as you can pray against communism. Amen? If you look at communist governments, one thing they have in common is they oppose Christianity, and they're very much against the Bible. You're not going to find a thriving communist government, and Christianity is thriving there as well. They shut it down. And Acts 4 is not communism in action, it's unity in action. And there is a difference. It's not being imposed from the top down saying, because here's what communism is, it's saying everything you have belongs to the government, and now they'll take it and they'll disperse it so that everybody has a little bit of everything. And that's not what's happening in the book of Acts. Amen. This is unity that is fueled by this one statement, which is a powerful statement that we're going to look at more closely here in just a moment. Amen. No one said... Amen. Tonight, if you're sitting there and somebody comes up and grabs your Bible and walks off, what's your, what's your reaction going to be? Hey, that's mine. That's, that's mine. And, I, you know, I'm, I'm not saying that shouldn't be your reaction. If somebody comes and grabs your purse, ladies, and walks off, you're going to say, hey, that's, that's mine. Or, Brother Brett, yeah, you might say that's hers. Hopefully you would not say that's mine. All right? You would say, hey, ushers, that person has my purse. That's our normal reaction. That's our normal response. But the Bible says no one said that anything that belonged to him was their own. Then whose was it? That's the question. If this land or this building or this money is 
that belongs to me is not mine, then whose is it? Well, was it the government's? No, it wasn't the government's. Was it the church's? No, that's not what they were saying. Were they, were they saying, well, then it's, it's not just mine, it belongs to all of us. That's not what they were saying. This was not just socialism and community effort. That's not what it was. Then who did, their, who did they believe that their possessions belonged to? You got it. We're going to look at that more in just a moment. But this is a powerful, unifying principle. The more that we become possessive, the less unified we will be. The more that we become possessive, that that's my parking spot, that that's my seat, that that's my area of ministry, that that's my responsibility, amen, that that's my little, you know, that we get, we get our little entitlements in the church. And the more that we become possessive, that that's mine and that's mine, amen, the less unified we become, amen. But the early church was unified because they said nothing belongs to me, it's not mine, amen, it all belongs to God. Amen. It's not my microphone. If somebody else gets the microphone, amen, God, if you want to anoint somebody else, then God raise them up and anoint them because it's not mine. It belongs to you. And I believe the less, I'm not saying we don't need structure in the church. What I'm saying is we got to let go of this possessive mentality we've got to let go of this possessiveness amen and we've got to get back to saying you know what it's God amen it's all about Jesus it's not about me it's not about mine amen it it sounds like the seagulls on Nemo mine 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 it's not about me it's about Jesus and that is what enabled 8,000 people plus to be unified is that it wasn't about them and how many of you know that's the battle we fight? The enemy constantly at work to try to get us self-centered. Amen. Well, he didn't shake my hand. He didn't say hi to me. I didn't get an opportunity. And, and so on. The enemy's constantly at work to try to get us focused on us. But the early church had unity because it wasn't about them. It was about Jesus. Amen. The third point that we're going to look at was the ministry of the apostles. Verse 33, Acts 4.33 says, and with great power, somebody say with great power, with great dunamis, gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I want you to notice that it, it kind of takes a break from the unity that we start reading about in 42, and it, I'm sorry, 32, verse 32, it takes a little break here and it talks about the powerful ministry of the apostles, and then it picks right back up in verse 34, And 35 and talks about the unity again. Sandwiched right in the middle of otherworldly supernatural unity. And that's the only way you can describe a kind of unity where people are willing to sell their houses and bring the profit and lay it at the feet of the preacher. And I'm not saying to do that, okay? I'm not saying go home tonight and sell your houses and bring me the money. I'm not saying to do that. All right? But but how many of you would agree that's supernatural unity? That the whole church is saying, you know what, Pastor, we're gonna we're going to trust you with our, we're going to withdraw 401ks and trust you that you know best with that. In fact, I would, I would appreciate if you don't do that, okay? All right? But, but sandwiched right in between this supernatural unity in verse 32 and then verse 34 and 35, right in the middle of that supernatural unity is ministry of the apostles. And the Bible says they ministered with great power. Amen. My dad and I were talking today and he told me that Brother Shalom, the missionary to India, told him that the only thing that demons understand is authority. 
Amen. The only thing that demons, that demonic spirits understand is authority. And I know in the world we live in today, people want an emasculated ministry, a powerless preacher, a pastor who is a man of the people. Amen. But what we need in this hour are not pastors who belong in the hands of the people. We need pastors who are men of God. Amen. We don't need emasculated ministries. Amen. We need powerful men of God to get in the pulpit and declare what thus saith the Lord. I believe in these four verses, 32, 33, 34, 35 of Acts 4, there's great cause and effect, and it goes two ways. The reason that the church is unified on one side and the other side of verse 33 is because there's powerful ministry in the middle of it. Amen. I believe that in order for the church to be unified, there's got to be authority in the pulpit. Amen. There's got to be a man of God standing in the pulpit and declaring, thus saith the Lord. There's got to be anointed, powerful, dunamis, strong ministry that's not cowering to this world. That's not cowering to the spirits of the hour that we live in. Amen. We've got to have a man of God standing in the pulpit that's declaring the word of the Lord. And I, I know that there, there may be some of you that you've got your, your little pet issues that you wish pastor would let down a little bit on this and a little bit on that. But what you don't understand is that's, that's exactly what the devil wants is a preacher that would just keep on backing down. But if there's going to be unity in the church, there's got to be a powerful ministry right in the middle of it. Amen. The reason there's great power in the ministry is because they're surrounded by unity. The reason there's unity is because there's powerful ministry in the middle. But the reason that there's powerful ministry is because there's unity on either side of them. Can I tell you, nothing will distract a preacher like division. Amen. I, I know, you, you, you may not know what I'm talking about. I promise you, you get in this pulpit and you start preaching, you can start feeling those spirits of division. Amen. You, you don't have to know that somebody's been on the phone gossiping and slandering and tearing people. You don't have to know. You just feel it in the spirit. You feel those spirits start rippling through the building. But you let the church get unified and watch what happens in the pulpit. Amen. You let the church stop gossiping and bickering and start praying. And you're going to unleash the pulpit to be powerful. Amen. You want a powerful pulpit? Then get unified in the pew. You want powerful ministry in the pulpit? Then get unified in the pew. Amen. Get behind the vision God's given to the preacher, and you watch what God will do in the ministry of the word. God will elevate the authority of his word. If the saints will get unified, God will elevate the ministry. Amen. Nothing will wear out a pastor like division, strife, and complaining. Nothing. But when you have a unified church, you will have powerful ministry. And better yet, when there's unity in the church, the preacher can preach about Jesus. Look at what the apostles preached about. They preached about the resurrected Christ. Amen. They came, every Sunday was Easter Sunday. Every Sunday they got up and preached about Jesus. Well, you get too far removed from Jerusalem, Paul ain't doing a whole lot of preaching about Jesus. And when he gets outside the church, he does some, right? He, when he's there with Felix and 
and, and Agrippa and those guys, yeah, he's talking about Jesus, but whenever he's in the church, he's straightening out problems. All right, he's talking to people, hey, you need to stop shacking up with your mother-in-law. Right? I mean, he's, he's dealing with some nasty, some nasty stuff. He really, read it. All right, he's dealing with some gross stuff. Amen. Why? Because when, the, when there's not unity in the church, the preacher's not free to preach about Jesus. He's got to try, to try to straighten out all the mess in the church. But if we can get unified, amen, we could come every Sunday and the preacher could just get up there and preach Jesus. How many of you want to go to a church where the preacher preaches about Jesus? Well, then let's get unified. Let's get on the same page. Let's get together. Let's get unified in spirit and soul. Let's start having all things in common. Look at the ministry of the apostles. Every Sunday was Easter Sunday. They were just talking about the resurrected Jesus. I mean, here's the thing about the resurrected Jesus that we need to also understand that that was by far the most controversial topic of that day. Amen. It was the most controversial topic of that day. Amen. Again, it said the apostles ministered with great power. They were strong, dunamis, dynamite. Amen. They were powerful and they were, they were, they were heads on. They were taking head on the most controversial issues of their day, which was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I, I, again, I know today, Pastor, would you please stop talking about the issues of our day? Amen. Pastor, would you stop talking about where the church stands on homosexuality and transgenderism? Would, would you stop talking about the LBGQTLMNOPQRSTUV issues? Amen. We get nervous when the preacher in the pulpit starts talking about the controversial issues of our day. Pastor, if you don't stop talking like that, somebody's going to think you're a homophobe. Somebody's going to think you're a transphobe. Amen. At some point, we're going to have to wake up and see the devil is gaslighting the church. Amen. At some point, we're going to have to wake up and understand. Standing against perversion is not a phobia. Amen. I'm not afraid of homosexuality. I'm not afraid of transgenderism. There's no phobiaism. Amen. What I'm telling you is we got to stand upon the word of God. And we need preachers that will get in our pulpit that aren't afraid to talk about the controversial issues of the hour. I, I believe this. All that we're seeing going on right now in our world. And, and here's what's happening. People just keep backing down. Oh, well, we need to be compassionate toward transgenderism we, we need to be and I'm not saying we need to be filled with hate and angry and slander I'm not saying we need to do any of that but I'm telling you all of this is leading to one point and it's the normalization of pedophilia that's where it's heading all of this that we're seeing we're just watching it gradually march back 20 years ago it was normalizing homosexuality and it's gradually gotten to the point now where it's transgenderism and what are they saying in this hour with transgenderism they're saying a five-year-old can decide what sex they are a five-year-old can decide, a five-year-old can decide whether they're a man or a woman. And mom and dad, if you say something about it, there are laws that are going to be passed that they'll take your child from you if you stand up against it. Well, if a five-year-old can determine what sex they are, the next step is a five-year-old can determine who they have sex with. And the parents, if we don't take a stand somewhere, mom and dad, if you don't take a stand now, if you don't take a stand right here, 
And right now, if the church doesn't take a stand right here, this is not the end of perversion. It's the beginning of perversion. But the church has got to take a stand. We're not going to let the devil take our children. We're not going to let the devil destroy our kids. We're going to take a stand on these issues. Amen. And when the, when the church got unified, I'm going to tell you, when, when you get a church behind a preacher, it frees the preacher to get up in the pulpit and say what thus saith the Lord. It frees the preacher to get up in the pulpit and say, as for me and my house, as for me and this church, we are going to serve the Lord. Amen. Amen. So I say in this hour, let's get unified. And let's have powerful ministry in the pulpit. Amen. And as we get powerful ministry, the church becomes more unified. And as the church gets more unified, the ministry gets more powerful. Amen. Which brings me to the last point in this. I know there's a preaching atmosphere here right now. Thank you all. Y'all are helping me. I feel like preaching. The final point in, in this portion of scripture is the introduction of Barnabas. And I believe this introduction of Barnabas brings all these points together. Barnabas is a key figure in the New Testament church. His real name, the Bible tells us, is Joseph. But the church leaders give him a nickname, Barnabas, which means son of consolation or son of encouragement. Again, that doesn't mean his dad's name was encouragement. All right, but What they were saying is Barnabas is a voice of encouragement. Barnabas is a voice of encouragement. He's a voice of consolation. It was Barnabas that represented, before the disciples at the church in Jerusalem, he represented the Apostle Paul. How many of you are with me still? I'm almost done. It was Barnabas, right? The Bible says Paul wanted to join himself to to the disciples in Jerusalem, but they were terrified, as I probably would have been too, right? The last they had heard, you know, Paul was, Saul was having people put in prison and persecuting and even, you know, death warrants were being served to them. And now the next thing they know, Saul says, hey, I want to be a part of your worship service. They're like, ushers, that guy's not coming in here. They were terrified, but Barnabas stands, between, stands beside Saul or Paul and, and he speaks words of encouragement. He says, I can vouch that this man has had an encounter with God. He's not the same man that he used to be. Barnabas was a voice of encouragement. At the conclusion of Acts chapter 9, Paul's ministry has just gotten started, but he's put on the sidelines. If you read throughout the book of uh, uh, chapter 9, uh, Saul is seemingly, right, they, they, uh, Saul begins testifying and ministering, and there's a, an uprising against Saul, and the Bible says that they send Saul to Tarsus. And then for two chapters, you don't find Saul. He's on the sidelines. He's not doing anything. And I believe that we can look at the text and we could surmise that Saul probably would have stayed on the sidelines if it had not been for Barnabas. But but Barnabas is Antioch in Antioch and he's dealing with some issues there and he says, I know the man that that I'm going to go get the help man. He goes all the way down to Tarsus 
this misunderstood new, new disciple, amen, this man that everybody has forgotten about, but Barnabas goes down there and he gets Saul and he brings him to Antioch with him, and the Bible says that Saul and Barnabas taught many people there, and that really was the beginning of the ministry of the Apostle Paul. Why? Because he had a voice of encouragement in his life. Amen. Amen. Barnabas. Barnabas would accompany Paul on his first missionary trip. First missionary trip, Paul goes, how many of you know, like at least a third of our Bible, a portion close to that wouldn't even be there if, if Paul, if his ministry hadn't got pushed to the forefront. And all of that was because one voice of encouragement that believed in Paul. He would stand beside Paul in his defense of the true gospel when they were demanding that the Gentiles be circumcised Paul stood up and said, no, the Gentile, that's not the gospel. Amen. That's not, that's not this new covenant. Amen. And Barnabas was the one that stood beside Paul, even when it might have been an unpopular stance to take. Why? Because that's what voices of encouragement do. Barnabas, the son of encouragement, was a huge factor in the New Testament church. And I say tonight, we need more encouragers in the church. Amen. We need more voices of encouragement in the church. We need people that will look at their neighbor and say, I believe in you. Amen. I will vouch for you. I will fight for you. Amen. I'll go to Antioch with you. I'll go on a missionary trip with you. I believe in you. I believe on this spectrum of encouragement, there are two ends of the spectrum that are both negative. On the one end, you've got the Eeyores, right? So we've got the encourager, that's Barnabas. On one end of that spectrum, we've got Eeyore, you know, oh, bother, right? Always negative. Nothing is good. Y'all know who I'm talking about, right? Maddie, I don't know if there's a song you can help me. No, no song. Um, Winnie the Pooh, his buddy, the donkey. All right. That's Eeyore. Everything's negative. They're there to underline the bad and undermine the good. They don't see the good in anything. If there's, if there's a... A silver lining, they're going to find the cloud. They're going to find the negative. And can I tell you, we need less Eeyores in the church today. We, we need less Eeyores that are, well, I'm, I'm, a, I'm not an Eeyore. I'm a skilled problem finder. Interpretation, you're an Eeyore. Amen. Let me, let me tell you what's better than being a problem finder, being a solution finder. Amen. We, we need less Eeyores in the church. We need less Eeyores that are good at digging up people's past. And we need some encouragers that are there to dig up somebody's future. Amen. That I believe God can. Amen. Come on, Saul. I'm going to stand beside you and vouch for you. If nobody else will, I'll believe in you. On one end of this spectrum, we've got Eeyore. On the other end, we've got the enabler. Amen. Enablers, they, they don't allow you to grow spiritually because they justify sin and provide shelter from correction. Amen, you get a little correction. Oh, you poor baby, don't you? That pastor didn't mean that. Poor little baby, poor little pookie. Pastor didn't mean that. Come here, you poor thing. The Bible didn't really mean that about your sin. It's okay. It's okay, honey baby. You can do whatever. That's an enabler. And sometimes you need to let that child of God get corrected by the word of God. Amen. Sometimes you you need to let the preacher, you need to let the pastor do some pastoring. Amen. Last time I checked, now I I know there's a new 
form of parenting these days, and it's, you know, use your inside voice and don't use your angry voice. Use your, I don't know about all that. All I knew is I was getting a beating, all right? I don't know about this new form, but I'm going to tell you, correction. And I'm not mad about it. Thank God. Thank God that I, I needed that correction. Amen? But I'm going to tell you, it was through that correction that I grew. I grew in my disciplines. I grew in having disciplines in my life. I grew to know how to treat people with kindness because of correction that came into my life. And so we don't need Eeyores that are always negative, but we don't need enablers that don't allow people to grow. What we need is right in the middle of that. We need some encouragers that will stand up and say, I, I believe in you. I believe in you, and I'm going to help you grow, and I'm going to invest in you, and I'm going to speak into your life, and I'm going to pray with you when nobody else will, and I'm going to stand beside you when nobody else will, and I'm going to worship with you when nobody else will, because, Paul, I believe there's a future that God has for you. Can we thank God right now for the encouragers in our lives? Listen, if you've made it this far in your walk with God, you've had an encourager somewhere. You've had somebody in your path that encouraged you when you felt like giving up. You had somebody that went down to Tarsus and said, God's not finished with you. Come on, let's go to Antioch together. Amen. We, we, we need encouragers. We need men and women who have a word of faith. We need men and women who can see the potential in people and are willing to invest in them. The Bible says that Joseph, surname or nicknamed Barnabas, the encourager, sold a piece of land and he came and laid the money down at the feet of the apostles. Amen. I, 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 don't, I, I don't know. It doesn't say that he laid down the profit. It says he laid down all the money from the sale of the house. And again, I'm not telling you tonight that I'm, you know, everybody go sell your homes and bring your money back. Uh, well, we'll build phase two if you do that, but I'm, I'm just saying, I don't know if that's. But how many of you agree that takes another level of faith? That, that takes an. How can you lay it all down at the apostles' feet? The same way. That you can ensure that you're an encourager. They're both tied together. The same verse that tells us that Barnabas was nicknamed, uh, that Joseph was nicknamed Barnabas. And that he laid the money down from the cell of his land down at the feet of the apostles. Also tells us that Barnabas was, anybody, what tribe was Barnabas from? Barnabas sold his piece of land. Saw Barnabas the Levite sold his piece of land. Let's read Numbers chapter 18, verse 20. The Lord spake to Aaron, Thou shalt have no inheritance in their land, neither shalt thou have any part among them. I am their, thine part and thine inheritance among the children of Israel. Numbers 18, 24. For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering of the Lord, I have given that to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said among them, they will have no inheritance. Levites won't own any land in Jerusalem. That's what he's saying. Deuteronomy 10 and 9. Therefore Levi does not have any portion or inheritance with his brothers. The Lord is an inheritance just as the Lord your God spoke to him. Are you catching all of that? Barnabas was a Levite. 
He wasn't supposed to own any land in Jerusalem. He wasn't supposed to own any land, but he did. Commentaries explain that the first century life of the Levites was different than it had been. But Barnabas never lost sight of the fact that I shouldn't own anything, but because of the goodness of God, I've got land in Jerusalem. Because of the, the, the goodness of God, I own a piece of land in the promised land. Amen. And so if, if I can sell that, I have no problem giving it back to God because God has been good. Can I tell you what will keep you to be an encourager in the church? is when you never lose sight of how good God has been to you. Let me tell you how Eeyores are born in the church. It's when you start to believe that you deserve what you've got. Amen. That it's because of me that I've got what I've got. Then you start becoming a fault finder. Amen. Then you become a critic and negative. But when you look around you and you say, I'm living in houses that I didn't build. Amen. I'm driving cars that I shouldn't own. God's been good to me. And so I'm going to be an encourager. Come on, somebody. How many of you can say tonight, God's been good to me? Can you say tonight, God has been good to me? That's when we become extravagant givers in the kingdom of God. We wrestle with God over our tithe. When we lose sight of the fact that it all belongs to God. I'm a Levite. This ain't my land. My inheritance is in the Lord. This isn't mine. It belongs to God. Amen. So God, if I sell it, it's all going back to you. But we become tight-fisted givers. I'll give 9.5%. Give 9.72% because there's a fee. You know, the the credit card's going to take it from somebody, so I'm not going to pay that. Amen. I'm not trying to pick. What I'm saying is it's a spirit of mentality. When we forget, come on, how many of you can testify tonight? I'm, I'm doing better than I deserve to be doing. God's been good to me. God's been good to me. He's given me houses I I shouldn't be living. I've got land that I shouldn't own. God's been good to me, and so I have no problem giving everything back to God because he's been good to me, and I have no problem being an encourager. That's why I can look around tonight and look at somebody in this building and see the best in you because I know that God saw the best in me. Amen. I shouldn't even be here tonight, but God, thank you for your mercy. And if you can extend mercy to me, then you can extend it to them. I want us to raise our hands together. Here's the opposite of encouragement. It's not negativity. It's entitlement. It's entitlement. It's when we begin to think. Well, look, the early church, what did they say? They said, not one of them said, this is mine. There was, a, there was a spirit of encouragement in that early church. They all recognized how blessed they were. And not one of them looked at their possessions and said, that's mine. They all said, you know what, it belongs to God. And so if I'll sell it and I'll give it so that the ministry can go forward. And I'm praying right now, not that a spirit of giving would come into this church, but that a spirit of encouragement would come into this church. And a spirit of gratitude would come into this church. Because if you really become a Barnabas, if you really become an encourager, and you really recognize that I've been blessed of God, you will give extravagantly to the work of God. God. 
Hallelujah. I feel the Holy Ghost in this house right now. I wish somebody would find your neighbor right now, and I want you to pray a prayer of encouragement over them. I want you to open your mouth and speak faith over your neighbor. Come on, in the name of Jesus, I want us to speak faith. We've got to get unified. We've got to become unified like never before. Church, if we will be unified in this hour, multitudes are coming. Multitudes. Come on. I want you to pray faith. Well, I don't see it, Pastor. If you could see it, it wouldn't be faith. I want you to pray faith right now, God. I believe you're raising up an Apostle Paul. I I believe, God, you've got a great future for my brother and my sister. Uh, Lord, I believe you're doing great things in their life. Uh, In the name of Jesus, come on, somebody, get, get a hold of that spirit of encouragement. Come on, leaders, it's not my position. Come on, leaders, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. It's not about whether or not I sing the solo, it's about Jesus. It's not about whether or not I play the instrument, it's about Jesus. Come on, let's let that Barnabas spirit get loose in this church tonight. Come on, just a few more minutes and we'll dismiss, but I want you to pray with somebody else. I want you to pray with anointing and with authority. I want you to pray with anointing and with authority in Jesus' name. Come on, elevate them, Lord. Use them in this hour. No entitlement. It's not about me. It's not about me. It's not about my position. It's not about my name being known. It's about the name of Jesus being made famous. It's about the name of Jesus being exalted. My inheritance is in the Lord. My inheritance is in the Lord. This world is not my home. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That house I live in is not mine. The car I drive, it's not mine. It belongs to the Lord. That 401k, That could disappear tomorrow if the economy crashes. It's not yours, it's the Lord's. Come on, Living Hope, here we go. Are you ready for the multitude? Are you ready for God to bring the multitude? I believe the Lord is going to be adding. I believe on Sunday there's going to be another new family here. But who's going to take responsibility and say, I'll assimilate them. I'll love them. I'll be the Barnabas that believes in them. I'll be the Barnabas that attaches myself to them. And this Sunday he's going to add, and the next Sunday he's going to add, and Sunday after that, many are going to come, and a little by little by little, but as we assimilate them, the next thing we know, we're going to look around, and there's going to be a multitude. Hallelujah. In the name of Jesus, Lord, I thank you tonight. God, everything I own belongs to you, Lord. Everything I own belongs to you. Come on, can you say that with true 
Do you mean that in your spirit? Everything I own belongs to you, Lord. Every, the value, the equity of my home belongs to you, Lord. If you ask it of me tonight, Lord, I'll go take it out and give it to you. I'm not trying to take up an offering tonight, but I'm trying to tell you the kind of church that God will bring a multitude to is a church that truly believes that everything. Let's take it a step deeper. Money's the easy one. How about our time? A lot of us don't get too stingy when it's the wallet, but when it gets into our daytime or in our clock, we shut down. Okay, God, you can have this segment, those hours, but you start asking any more than that, and I'm going to get my feathers ruffled. I'm going to get bent out of shape. Come on. Barnabas, where you at, Barnabas? Come on. I got eternity to be with the Lord. Every minute I live, I'm redeemed. That means my time belongs to the Lord. Come on. I'm trying to help somebody right now to get liberated from the things that are dragging you down into an entitlement mindset. Hallelujah. Amen. Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without knowing the exact path that it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. Be sure to subscribe and watch us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. So I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. I'm going to wait.